youth sitting in the front row today. That's good. Teaching us how to do that. Man, that's so cool. Guys, are you, like, how excited are you about these baptisms? Like, we're going to, we get to do this, like, every week, pretty much. So I'm hoping it just keeps going. All right, well, hey, if this is your first time here, my name's Adam. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're watching online, uh, super excited you guys are with us. Also, if you stayed home because the clocks went forward, okay, I mean, I get it. You don't get the gold star, though. These people, you guys get a gold star. You're in church. You got one up. And if you have kids, you're like, what are you talking about, right? Because you got up at the same time because they don't care. So, all right, we are finishing up the book of Jonah today, uh, believe it or not. And I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, we, were, we spent all those weeks and we were only two chapters in. Yep, we're doing two chapters in one day because um, my brain just works different. Uh, so I'm going to start somewhere else though. So remember the movie Inception? How, what does this have to do with the book of Jonah? Um, awesome movie though, right? came out 12 years ago. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to spoil the ending. Uh, but I don't care because it came out 12 years ago and you deserve it at this point. So uh, the movie is about these people who are like, they're able to go inside other people's dreams and then inside the dream, they can go inside dreams. So they're like inside of dreams, inside of dreams. It's really, uh, it's kind of hurts your brain as you think about it. But as you get deeper inside of these dreams, it's harder and harder to tell the difference between reality world and the dream world. So they have these things in the movie called Totems, where you're like really familiar with it and it helps you distinguish like, am I in reality? Am I in a dream right now? And the main character, his, is a top that he spins. And if he's in the real world, obviously the top will spin for a while and fall down. But if he's in the dream world, the thing just keeps spinning. So at the end of the movie, uh, he is, the main character is kind of going through this whole thing and he's about to get uh, the thing that he's wanted for years. He's going he's gonna to see his kids. And he comes into the house. He can hear them outside. And he real quick gets out his top and he spins it. And then he gets distracted because the kids come running in and he's hugging them. And it's this whole thing. It's this great reunion. And then the camera goes back over to the top spinning. And it just kind of sits there and it, it, it wobbles a little bit. And then it keeps going. And then all of a sudden, boom, the screen goes to black and it's over. And you're like, oh. What happened, right? Um, did, did it fall or did it stay? Was he in the dream world or was he in reality? And the movie doesn't tell you. Now, I just want to point out, that wasn't an accident, right? They didn't like forget to finish the movie, right? It was like, oh, five seconds of film more would have helped us know what happened. No, they did it on purpose, right? Because they want you to decide what happened, right? You're going to have that conversation with your friend and they're going to say, I think it was a dream world. I think it was reality. And, uh, you know, then more people go see the movie, they make more money. So it was an intentional storytelling technique that they used there. They, they wanted the story to be over before the tension was resolved, right? The screen went black before the tension in the, 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 the story was actually over. Um, the story of Jonah kind of ends the same way. It ends with uh, a cliffhanger. It ends before the tension in the story is resolved. Uh, The story, it begs a question and the question's not answered. And it's designed that way. It's not some accident. It's not like the guy who wrote it ran out 
of paper. And he's like, I guess we'll just stop here. It's not, it was on purpose because what's supposed to happen is uh, the tension that was going to be resolved is now transferred to us. Instead of the writer resolving the tension, now we have to resolve the tension. We have to answer the question. So um, that's where we're going to be today. All right, so quick recap in case you, you know, it's your first time or you um, don't even remember what happened yesterday, let alone a week ago. Uh, story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to this city called Nineveh to preach there. Jonah chooses to go in the opposite direction. God sends a storm to stop him, and then uh, Jonah's thrown into the water. The storm calms. Fish swallows him. Jonah stays in the fish for three days and three nights. Fish spits Jonah back out, going in the right direction. And he is now on his way to the city to preach like God told him to. And that's chapter three is Jonah in the city of Nineveh preaching. Now, I'm not going to read uh, that to you. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. Um, sorry if you were super excited to read that chapter. I'll just tell you it's, it's pretty simple. He preaches to, to Nineveh and he preaches a really short message. Just five words in the Hebrew. Just five. A five word sermon. You wish, right? <laughs> Never will that happen. Um, it's actually not a great sermon. His sermon is basically a warning. Uh, he says that God's going to destroy the city. Uh, God, God's, God's coming for you guys. And it's, it's an evil city. We talked about that like week one. It's an evil city. A lot of horrible things happening there. To give you like a, a context for it so you can imagine this, it's, it's huge too. Many scholars believe they had upwards of like 600,000 people in the city. Uh, now, I'll read a verse later that says 120,000, but many scholars believe that that's the number of children, not the number of the total number of people. So again, that 600,000 people, that's somewhere between like Cleveland and Columbus. It's, it's massive city. And Jonah goes in and he preaches this very short, hey, God's going to destroy the city uh, sermon. And then you know what happens? They... They listen, they repent, they turn to God. The whole city, from the highest king to the lowest sermon or servant, they all repent and say, we, we, they all turn to God. All of, they have this spiritual awakening, the whole thing, this massive like revival happens in this monstrous city. That is crazy, by the way. It's, it's crazy for a couple of different reasons. Number one, do you realize that Jonah is the worst prophet in the Old Testament? He is the worst, for real. Uh, the uh, NFL draft's coming up here soon. Most exciting time of the year for Browns fans, right? Um, that and free agency. Shut up. Your Eagles. The Eagles aren't any good either, so shut up. Um, but can you imagine just if you like made a list of prophets and you had a draft and you were trying to make the best like prophet team that you could, do you realize you would pick Jonah dead last? You're not picking the guy because think about, think about Jonah's resume. Like in the book, he runs from God. That's his first instinct. He, it's like God says, do this. And he's like, no. And he's a prophet. So he doesn't want to say what God wants him to say. He runs in the opposite direction. He's kind of a tool on the boat running from God. He gets thrown into a fish and he has to stay in there for three days. Like I'd be in a fish for like three seconds and I'd be repenting, but not Jonah. It takes three days for him to come around. And then he gets spit in the right direction and he preaches a crappy sermon. I can say that. I'm a preacher. I didn't, from one preacher to another. That was a crappy sermon, dude. You, you, you did not do a good job on that. And then even after the sermon's over, he's kind of a jerk. He is the worst prophet 
in the Old Testament. And yet, and yet, God uses the worst prophet to do like really one of the best things. Um, What happened in Nineveh is like the greatest revival in the Old Testament. For real, like this many people collectively turning to God It is unprecedented. It just doesn't happen. God used Jonah. What God did through Jonah was quantitatively and qualitatively like the biggest revival uh, in the Old Testament and possibly ever. I've never heard of a guy preaching a five-word sermon in an entire city, half a million people turning to God. I've never heard of it. And by the way, just a little side note, this is the biggest miracle in the book of Jonah. We, go, we all get caught up on the whole fish thing and the Jonah being inside the belly of a fish for three days. But I tell you what, this is harder, isn't it? I mean, think about it. If you're going to put money on something, like either dude survives being in the belly of a fish for three days or an entire city, 500,000 people uh, come to faith in God because of a short little sermon. Which one are you putting money on? I'm going to put money on the fish and hold your breath, dude. Like that's, that seems more possible than 600,000 people coming to faith in God. A spectacular, spectacular miracle that God does through this reluctant prophet. So uh, what chapter four is, is Jonah's reaction to this thing happening. And uh, before we get into that, I just want to ask you, how do you think he should react to that? What should Jonah's response to God doing this thing through him be? I can tell you, as a preacher, how I would respond. I mean, this is the pinnacle of the pinnacle if you are a preacher. I'd be just excited if 600,000 people heard me preach, let alone responded. Like, that's crazy, right? Like, that's a lot of people. That's a lot. And, and what happens, the fact that they all come to faith, that they all turn to God, like, that is like throwing the game-winning Touchdown in the Super Bowl, hitting the game-winning shot in the NBA Finals and hitting a Grand Slam to win the World Series, like all rolled into one. This is the peak of the peak of the peak for a preacher. I mean, it, the only part that would be a little sad about it is that it's all downhill from here, right? It, you, can never, you can never recreate that again. That would be the only downside. This is amazing. So I think that's how he maybe should respond. But if we look at chapter 4, Verse one, we see how he actually responds. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So if you're not following, the the change of plans is God was gonna destroy the city and now God's not gonna destroy the city. And Jonah's like, what? He's angry about this. And he continues, verse two. So he complained to the Lord about it and you gotta catch the tone here because it's hilarious Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. That is some of the weirdest verses in the Bible right there, isn't it? Like the tone with which he says those words makes no sense. Even inside of that, uh, do you realize he word for word quotes a a verse out of the Psalms that uh, you are a merciful and compassionate God. That's word for word a a verse in the Psalms that's praising God. But here Jonah's complaining using the same language. 
can't believe you're so eager to not destroy people, God. What are you doing? Can you, like, what if you got in a fight with your spouse and you talk like that? Like, I can't believe you forgive me so much, right? Can't believe you're so patient with me. You know, like, that's, that's how he's acting here. It just makes no sense. And then he ends his little rant with a request. Just, just kill me. I got to tell you, if I'm God, I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know what? That fish is still hungry. Come here. Like, let's, let's do this thing. Like, I, I, I don't, like that, that would have sent me over the edge. He's toast. Thankful for, thankful uh, that I'm, well, lucky for you, lucky for Jonah. I'm not God, right? Uh, so here's how God does respond in verse four. The Lord replied, um, is it right for you to be angry about this? Now, first of all, blown away that God doesn't just, there's no anger in that, right? It's actually, he's cool, calm, and collected. He's like, hey, let's consider this for a minute, Jonah. Like, is your response proper here? By the way, that's just a good question to ask yourself all the time. Like, is it right for you to be angry about this? Just a good little self-reflection question. Um, And I love the irony here that God is merciful and compassionate towards Jonah in this moment while Jonah is complaining about him being merciful and compassionate. Isn't that kind of ironic that there's these layers to this story? Now, God asks him this question, is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah's not going to answer like any testosterone-filled man would not. If you ask me a good question when I'm angry, I'm just not going to answer. I'm going to leave. Um, But God's going to ask him the question again, but first he's going to show him something. So here's what happens. Uh, Verse five, Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. So he doesn't answer the question, but he does go uh, get some some altitude and he wants to look down on this city and he is not bird watching here. Uh, He is watching the same way some of you watch hockey and NASCAR, right? You watch the hockey for the fights, you watch NASCAR for the crashes and he's watching Nineveh hoping to see an asteroid come out of the clouds and hit this thing. It is a morbid curiosity with which he is watching the city. Um, Even though God said he wasn't going to destroy the city, Jonah is sitting here going, maybe he still will, which is sick, I know. So God's going to show him something, right? Uh, So here's what happens. This little (laughs) way that God has to show Jonah something. Verse six, and the, the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. As soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Isn't that cute, right? He's got this little plant. He's all excited. Here it is, uh, verse 7. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. That's quick. Okay, so we had the plant. We're excited about the plant. Now the worm has eaten the plant. The plant's dying. And then verse 8. As the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this. So again, if you're keeping score, God arranged for the plant, arranged for the worm, arranged for the the scorching east wind, right? God did all that. And now it's not, God's not like doing like, like the magnifying glass with the ant thing. That's kind of what this feels like, doesn't it? Like God's like having, and, and you know what, Jonah deserves it. But um, he's taking him somewhere. He's trying to teach him something through this. This is not malicious. He's trying to show Jonah something. Um, so now God's going to interact with him again in verse nine. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Is it right? And Jonah responds, yes. 
even angry enough to die. Doesn't he just sound like a, a kid, right? Like this is, my, my five-year-old does this to me. Like we have the best day ever. And if you tell him no once, he's like, this is the worst day of my life. And I'm like, dude, like everything was great up until I told you, no, you can't play video games for five hours, only four, right? Anyways, um, so Jonah responds like this, and now God is kind of poised and ready to lay it on him. So here's what God says in verse 10 and 11. You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So, boom, right? (laughs) Kind of set you up for that one there, Jonah. Um, God does a little comparison here. You're upset about a plant, a plant that you didn't put there, you didn't water it, you didn't do anything for that plant. You're angry about this. Shouldn't I also feel sorry for this massive city full of people and animals? That's the question that God asks. And then guess what happens? Credits roll. Book over. Nothing happens after this. It ends on the question, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God does this illustration. He sets Jonah up for this thing. He leads Jonah right up to the edge of maybe changing his mind, changing his heart, and the credits roll. We don't get to see how Jonah responds. And like, don't you kind of really want to know like what's Jonah going to say? My, my money's on him pouting more, <laughs> right? But, but you really want to see that God did all these things, like orchestrated this whole thing to show Jonah something. And you kind of want to say, oh, and then Jonah was like, you're right, God. But you don't get that. It just ends. This key tension between Jonah's heart for the city of Nineveh and God's heart for the city of Nineveh does not get resolved. The tension remains, but the story ends. And I believe the reason this question gets left hanging is because now we are supposed to answer the question. The tension gets taken off of Jonah and God and put on us. The readers of this story are now supposed to respond to this question. We're supposed to resolve the tension. The tension between God's heart and our heart, right? The spotlight is off of Jonah now and it's on to us. This is the top spinning at the end of the movie Inception. The top spinning and now we have to sit here and go, ooh, what's going to happen there? So what I want to point out here is uh, some tensions in the story of Jonah. Some tensions that, it's kind of tensions between the way we would typically think and what the story actually shows us is true. And so when I say typically think, you, maybe, maybe you might not think all of these ways, but I think it's helpful to look at them either way. But uh, you might find yourself going, oh yeah, I definitely think that way. And then you look at Jonah and go, oh man, I need to shift kind of the way I think. So there's just some tensions here. So uh, here's the first tension in the book of Jonah. Uh, number one, there is a huge gap, huge gap between what I care about and what God cares about. Huge. Emphasis on huge. Um, now, here's the thing. This is, this is why it's hard sometimes to, when you read the Bible um, because your instinct might not be there. So God intentionally sets Jonah up for this comparison between how much Jonah cares about a plant 
and, and how much God cares about the entire city, right? So, so the equivalent would be me coming up to you with a bottle of Roundup and going, hey, that tree you like in your backyard, I'm going to spray it with Roundup or an atomic bomb could be dropped on the city of Columbus. Now, <laughs> you're not a horrible person, so you're going to let the plant die and save the entire city. Not Jonah, right? He's like, where, are, where is the meteor? Let's, let's do this thing. You don't struggle with that, right? So it's easy in this story, I think, to kind of separate ourselves and go, man, Jonah sucks, right? <laughs> like, I'm not that bad, right? So we could, we could read it and we could go, you know what? I just feel better about myself because I'm not as bad as Jonah. Like, that could be. But I'd rather take this comparison and then let's, let's put it into our own lives then. Like what God essentially told Jonah is, hey, you care about things that you shouldn't care about. There, there's, a, there's a massive gap between the things you're spending your emotional energy on and the things that, that, that God really, really cares about. There's a distance between the two. And we, like, we got to think about this, right? There are plenty of things in your life that, that you're like, simultaneously freaking out about that like don't matter that much or won't matter for long while at the same time maybe not caring about the things that that God really really cares about right there are there's a there's a gap between the two that you are really really frustrated and and angry about some things that man in like a couple of weeks it's not going to matter at all and then over here there are things that will last forever that you're just like completely ignoring. And I think that's the thing that God would want us to look at in this story. And let me, let me go first. I, I'll, I'll tell you a story about how I just did this this week. Um, I got called into jury duty this week. And um, it's in Wadsworth. Wadsworth jury duty. What, what happens in Wadsworth that they require a trial, right? Like somebody to not pick up their dog poop and we got to, you know, <laughs> in my neighborhood. Karen's coming for you if you do that. So um, she knows somehow. I don't know how, but she knows. But uh, I got called into jury duty. And like, I'll be honest, like I didn't think I was going to have to go. I just, I had like mentally just kind of dismissed it. So they only do trials on like Tuesday, Thursday. So I, you know, I checked on Monday night and I was good. I didn't have it. So I had like really checked out. I just went about my week and then I, I get back on the website Wednesday and I had to go on Thursday and I'm like, that's trouble because that's sermon prep day. <laughs> By the way, if this isn't any good, it's, it's Wadsworth's fault, not mine. <laughs> um, so I was super ticked. And uh, I went in and I'll be on my prayers, like driving in that morning were, Lord, I don't want to. <laughs> I, I want my Thursday. And by the way, I can paint that as being some spiritual thing. Lord, I have to prepare a sermon today for you. So if you could go ahead and remove the obstacles for me doing what you want me to do, like I could make it that. And it is a little bit of that. But the other thing for me, sermon prep day is also introvert day for me. I get to be alone with my computer and not have to deal with, well, you. So um, just being real. And it's, it's helpful to my soul to have a day where I just, and, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just you, my four children, you know, they're either at school or at Nana and Papa's and I just get a day where I just like, it sounds like this. Well, he's not, you're not there, but you could actually, I should have you come on sermon for a day and do this. It would be better. It would. Um, 
So I'm, I'm complaining about all kinds of things, driving in to do this thing that I didn't want to do. And then, you know, you sit in a big room, they have like 30 jurors that they could pick from. They only need eight. So I'm, I, my, my prayers are so, it's like, all right, Lord, well, the odds are in your favor here. You don't, you don't even have to do much here to make me not get picked. But as I'm sitting there, like you kind of have to pay attention because it feels all official. Um, I just, I was praying and I, I felt God kind of start to work on my heart. So I'm like, all right, Lord only have me get picked if you really want to like do something with my presence there. Like if I, if there's a purpose for it, like I don't want to just sit here and like waste my whole day or whatever, but Lord, if you want to do something with it, uh, put me, put me on there. And sure enough, you know, eight people get picked. It wasn't me. I was like, all right, yes. Um, and then, you know, they start plucking people out. Like this guy's getting removed and this guy's getting removed and they remove the last one. And he's like, all right, next guy on the list, Adam Barton. Oh, so I walk up and of course it's like the center seat in the front row. Everybody's right there. Me and the judge are right here. And I'm going to not lie to you right now because as I'm a pastor in church, I tried to get out of it in that moment. And I even used the fact that I was a pastor. I'm not gonna, I did. I was like, guys, listen, you know, um, I, I am loyal to a higher court than this one. No offense, sir. I didn't say that, but kind of like that. Um, I did. I really did. And they just ignored me and said, you're good. So I'm like, okay, all right. You must have some reason for this. And it was an all day thing. And I know some of you, some people come after me after first service. Like I've been a part of a jury where we were there all week and I'm like complaining because I was there one day, but it was from like 8.30 to 5.30. It was a really long day. And they didn't even give us lunch. It was a lie. I, t I was always told they feed you lunch. No, he's like, come back in an hour. I'm like, where's my lunch, man? Like, <laughs> um, so we sit through the whole thing. We do this thing. It was boring. If you're morbidly interested, it, it was really boring. Um, give the, the verdict and uh, we start walking out. Of course, the lawyers all wanna to talk to you about stuff and we're walking out to the car and one of the ladies who was on the jury with me, like catches up and me, hey, so you're a pastor, like where at? And starts asking me all these questions. It's kind of cool because it's in the parking lot across the street. I'm like, it's that one right there. <laughs> like we literally, we're, we're right there. Uh, so we start talking and, and sure enough, without me even trying, I get to share Jesus with this lady in the parking lot. Like just no, and if, so, you know, we, we're church people, don't think church is them. So maybe like, you're, maybe you're not a Christian. You're sitting there going, well, okay. So you're going to do the pastor thing where you like beat somebody up spiritually. Like, um, no, actually <laughs> I could turn any, I could Jesus juke anybody. Listen, I, I'm like two sentences away from turning something spiritual at any time. I can, but I don't actually more often than not, when I tell somebody I'm a pastor, I'm on my heels and they're like, you know, somebody cussing like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, what do you think? I can't hear that. Like, I don't understand. I have four kids, guys. I have <laughs> things I say in my head. Um, so I actually usually am trying to, to not be the overbearing one because usually people expect it. But this lady, man, she starts asking me questions and I just got to share, listen, here's why I, I, man, Jesus is it for me. Like he, the story of God coming down and like sacrificing himself for us, that's compelling to me. More compelling than any other religious story or any other explanation for the universe. That story makes my heart resonate. I got to share that with her. Now I wish I could tell you that she like dropped her knees and became a Christian. She's sitting right over there. No, she's not. It's cool. It would be cool. Um, but I don't know what God's going to do with that, but I did get the sense standing in the parking lot here's why. It wasn't eight hours wasted. It's, it's eight hours worth it because I put you here to do that thing. And I just want to say, yes, sir. I'll do that. But this is, 
this is my tension in my life. And this is, uh, if I may, our tension in our life that I'm more like Jonah than I want to admit, right? I, I may care more about a city than a plant, but there's plenty of things in my life that just won't matter that, that much at all while I am simultaneously kind of ignoring things that will last forever. And by the way, here's my, here's my suggestion. I actually don't, I think maybe the, the typical pastor play is stop caring about these things that don't matter that much. Actually, go for it. Care, care about your kids' sports. Care about the way your hair looks. Care about what car you drive. That's fine. Care all you want. But, but this one, this one over here, this eternal care, you need to increase this one. It was the comparison. God, God wasn't like, oh, don't care about the plant. God's point was, why don't you care about the city? Right? That was the point. The point was not ignore the plant. Fine. God gives us good gifts. You're allowed to care about things that, that really won't matter in eternity, but he wants you to also simultaneously care about things that last forever. And that's the big thing that God wants to, us to see in this story. So here's my little test for you. Because again, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, I'm always trying to weasel out of this kind of stuff. <laughs> like mentally, I'm like, okay, that's for somebody else. This isn't me. Like I do care about eternal things. Um, but but to, to really kind of lock ourselves in, um, think about your prayer life, the things you pray about. Um, if you could break them into two categories, call it stuff, you know, stuff you care about. And then we'll call it the stuff God cares about. And I know that's like kind of an unfair way to put it because you could argue, well, God cares about everything. You're right, he can. He's not limited. He, he doesn't have to prioritize. He can care about everything. So you're right. Um, how about this? How about things that are temporary and things that are eternal? Can we put, the, can we put your prayers in those two categories? Things that, that will not last forever and, and things that will last forever. If I, if I put your prayer life into those two categories, which one which one weighs more? Is it the temporary? Are you praying more about things that just won't matter forever than you are about things that will matter forever? I'm not saying pray less about things that won't last forever. Keep it up. But also, God's question, shouldn't I also care about this city? All these people? That's, that's gotta increase. So I just want you to think about that. Whatever amount of time you're spending on the temporary, make it so that the eternal matches it, at least. Let's be honest, it should be more, but I'll be easy on you and say, let's at least have it match for now and then see if God can't tip the scales even more. So that's the first tension. I think I, I realize in my life that there's a gap between what I care about and what God cares about, and I want to close that gap. Second tension. Second tension in the book of Jonah is that we think God works in our strengths, but in reality, God actually works more powerfully in our authenticity, in our authenticity. Now you thought I was gonna say weakness because you've read things in the Bible before that talk about that, but I, I intentionally said authenticity because I want you to see something. Fun fact about the book of Jonah. Do you know who wrote the book of Jonah? Just guess. What? Jonah, yeah, it was Jonah. See, some of you might've said Jesus, partial credit, I guess. I don't know, it's confusing. Um, but Jonah wrote Jonah. Most, almost all scholars believe that Jonah wrote Jonah. Think about the story. Think about that story. Jonah wrote Jonah. Jonah told you that Jonah ran from God. 
Jonah told you that Jonah did not listen to what God wanted him to do and went in the opposite direction. Jonah told you about how he was kind of a jerk on the boat and how he was a little bit, you know, kind of suicidal and allowed them to throw him over the, the edge. Jonah told you that it took him three days to repent in the belly of a fish. Three days to repent. <laughs> Getting partially digested. He's like, okay, it's time, right? Like, that's, that's crazy. Jonah told you that he reluctantly went to a city. Jonah told you his crappy sermon. And Jonah told you his crappy attitude after his crappy sermon. Jonah told you all that about Jonah. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I got to be honest, if I'm writing the story, I got to leave at least some of that out, right? Like, oh, the plant was really cool though, guys. I promise like something to like defend yourself here. But he just like, he just puts it all out there. Like, here's what it was. And man, I think our instinct is to do the opposite, right? Is that we kind of want to cover up the parts that aren't pretty. Now that's why there's filters on Instagram. That's why we only put, you know, you take a hundred pictures on your phone and you're like scrolling through 99 of them to finally find that one that you're going to actually put out there for the world. But man, I want you to know that like, it really appears that God works more through authenticity than, than through this presentation of something to the world. And I, I think it, it makes sense if you think about it. God doesn't want to use the fake you. He wants to use the real you. He, he, he wants, God works more powerfully the more real you are. But he wants to work through that. So I don't know, like, that's a big deal for me. And I, like, I don't, you, uh, maybe you're, no, I don't know how much you like notice the way I do things. Uh, you're not that obsessed with me, I know. But like, I really kind of intentionally lean in like, I want you to like not see me as some thing up here. Like, man, I struggle with my kids. You know, I, I've, yeah, there's words that come out of my mouth even sometimes. And my wife's like, and like, I, I want you to know that I'm like a real person just trying to follow Jesus just like you are. And I, I because my, my philosophy is I think God works in that. Rather than me building myself up to be some Moses to be like, listen, we're going to go this way now. Like, I just don't think that's going to play very well. I'd rather you know who I really am because I think God's going to work through that. And I think the same thing plays out for you. We don't need to do the fake Christian thing. We don't. We, we need to be real to the world and, and say, hey, this is, this is who I am. This is, this is what's going on. And this is why I, I trust in Jesus. This is why I believe in God. Like we, we need to be real. I think God works in that. He wants to use the real world or he wants to use the real you to change your world. Authenticity. Jonah was real, man. And I don't know about you, but the book has impacted me. And it was his failures that moved me, not his successes, because there were none. So he had none to move me. Um, that's the second tension in the book of Jonah. Third tension that we need to resolve. Um, we think that God gives up on us when we blow it. But he is actually a God of second chances and thirds, and fourths, and fifths. Your instinct is that God, God gives you a, a chance and then that's, that's it when you blow it. Yeah. But if, you, if, if God actually operated that way in the story, the moment Jonah ran the wrong direction, that storm was capsizing that boat and the story is over, right? And again, so, so for me, Jonah's powerful because... Uh, I'm a, I'm a church kid, okay? So I grew up in church. 
Um, I'm also a pastor now. So this, this double works against me when I think about God sometimes because one, one of the most common thoughts I think to myself when I screw up, uh, it's just one little sentence, you should know better. Anybody like, I'll go first, I'm the pastor, I should know better. But if you grew up in church, you've been a Christian for a long time, I should know better, I should know better. And like, so, you know, we hear those, those awesome testimonies of people like, oh man, I was all these things, then I came to Jesus and my life was great after that. And you're like, oh, well, <laughs> see, I came to Jesus when I was four. <laughs> There wasn't a big change there, right? I didn't stop pulling my sister's hair or any of that stuff. Like, and, and then I kept screwing up even after I came to Jesus. And, and I don't even want to make the mistake of talking about it in the past tense there. I, I have screwed up, will continue to. And he loves me anyways, even though I know better. And the most spectacular thing in the book of Jonah, it's not just that God doesn't kill him <laughs> multiple times. It's that he still uses him. He still uses him. And I think that's the thing that I want to say to you. Like, man, it doesn't, the, the, we don't have a God who says you got one chance, you mess it up, you're done. Now you have to wander the earth like some purposeless nomad and I'll see you when you get to heaven. That's not the kind of God we have. He, he just kept going with Jonah, Right? I mean, I mean, numerous times he could have just blown Jonah out of existence and he, and he didn't. So look, look listen, look, look right at me. God has not given up on you. God has not given up on you. Somebody here needs to hear that. God has not given up on you. We say this all the time, but if you're not dead, God's not done. He, he, if you are still alive, you still have purpose. He still wants to do something with you. God did not make an accident um, some day in the past where you were supposed to have died and he's like, crap, I missed it. You were supposed to die back then. Like, this is kind of awkward. Like he, he has a purpose for you now. It does not matter how many wrong choices you've made, how much you've blown your life up. He still wants to use you to impact your world. He does, he does. That's the best part in the story of Jonah is that God, it's, it's the, the theme is that he is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He hasn't given up on us yet. He hasn't given up on us yet. That's the third tension. All right, fourth tension. We think God wants our obedience, but actually, God wants our hearts. We think God wants our obedience, but God actually wants our hearts. And uh, this is so, so important because the way Christianity is thought about and some of it, I'll be honest, the way it's taught, it seems like Christianity is about like the rules and the, the way you're, you know, this is what God wants you to do and this is how God wants you to live. And there's some merit to some of that, but look at the story of Jonah. Jonah, God says, go do this thing, and Jonah doesn't. Jonah goes in the opposite direction. And then, though, he does turn around, and he does the thing that God told him to do. But the story's not over yet. Right? It, it should have, credit should have rolled when the city got saved, right? It should have been done. Like, and the city turned to God. God relented. Yes. 
clap, credits, over. But chapter four exists because God wasn't after Jonah's obedience. God was after Jonah's heart. That's what chapter four is about. Listen, God does not want your begrudging submission. He doesn't want your begrudging obedience. He doesn't want you to say, okay, God, I guess I'll go do this thing. That's not what he wants. He wants your heart. That is the essence of Christianity. God doesn't want us to just outwardly conform to some rules. God's after love. I mean, think about it. If God was really after obedience, like if that's really God's main purpose, he is, he is not good at it, right? Can we just all say, like that's, God's doing a, a very poor job if he just wants obedience. I just want to say, if that's what he was after, one, he'd do things different, and two, we would be obedient. <laughs> that's not what he wants. God's after love. And think about the whole way he goes about everything, going all the way back, he gives this freedom. That the freedom was only required if he really just wanted a, re a loving relationship. And then even when we screw up, instead of dropping the hammer, he sends his son to die on the cross for us. I mean, God comes down into creation and sacrifices himself to die for our sins so that we can have a relationship with him. Does that sound like he's after your obedience? Come on, why would he do that? That's not what he wants. He wants your heart. And once he has your heart, obedience is moot. Of course, like that's, that's, that's where Christianity gets reversed because people make it about the rules and then they ignore the heart. But if, if God could have your heart, you're gonna want to follow him. And I know it's not every moment of every day, but overall, God will start to shift in your heart. As you give your heart to him, he will start to draw you into obedience. And yeah, every once in a while, you're gonna have, you're gonna have places in your life where you're like, God, you know what? I, I really just wanna keep this to myself. He'll work on it because he loves you. But the point isn't obedience, the point is love. Think about this too. I, I tell you all the time that I'm blown away by how amazingly the Bible was written. The way the book of Jonah is written, it's four chapters. It's a tiny little book. Everything in the story happens so fast. Jonah runs the other way and God sends a storm like that and costs him nothing. Boom, here's a storm. Oh, we need a giant fish to swallow Jonah and keep him in his belly for three days. Boom, there it is. Oh, we need the fish to <laughs> supernaturally spit him out, go in the right direction. Here we go, boom. Oh, Jonah preaches a crappy sermon. Entire city gets saved, boom. Oh, we need a plant. Here it is. Oh, we need a worm. Here it is. Oh, we need a scorching wind. Here it is. You know the only thing that takes a long time in the book of Jonah? God's work on his heart. There's an intentional contrast between the two things. God does all these spectacular things and Jonah's plodding along, <laughs> slowly, kind of, sort of, maybe getting it. And we only know that he got it because he wrote the book. <laughs> we assume that he got it afterwards and then wrote the book as this expression of, hey, I'm an idiot, <laughs> but God's patient and kind and he loves me. Um, and I think that's our story, isn't it? God can do anything in your life, anything. But his whole purpose, the whole way he does things is designed to get your heart. So worship team, why don't you guys come back up here? And I just wanna challenge you with that. Like, that's a flip in your thinking. If you're in this Christian thing, if you've been going to church for a while, you might get caught up in the, 
man, I'm not doing this and I should be, or I am doing this and I shouldn't be and getting caught up in the rules. And there is something to that. When you disobey God, there's some stuff that happens in your heart. But man, I would, I would ask a, a different question. Like, do I really understand what he's done for me? Do I really understand the grace that has been given to me? Do I really understand what Jesus did for me? What if you started there instead of with your behavior that needs fixed? What if you went back to the cross and said, I cannot believe that the God of the universe would sacrifice himself for me. I can't believe that he's that patient with me. I can't believe that he hasn't given up on me yet. And just allow that to kind of do this in your heart and, and explode. <laughs> We're just going to roll with it. And then from that place, that place of gratitude, that place of just being blown away by the love of God, then see what he does with your behavior. Why don't you stand up and pray with me? Jesus, I pray for the person in this room who feels like Jonah. They've made a lot of choices that are heading in the wrong direction. Maybe they felt like for a while that there's no way you could use them because of how many mistakes they've made. Lord, I pray that you would just flood their heart with your love and your grace right now. They would know they would know that you have not given up on them yet. I pray for the church kids sitting here, Lord, who, who says that thing I should know better, Lord. I pray that they would be flooded with your love right now to know again, again, that you died for that too and that you want to use them in a powerful way in their life. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for being a God of second chances. I thank you for being a patient God. I thank you for never, ever, giving up on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.